everyone. My name is Yinka, and this is Ruben, and I'll be reading alongside, thank you, Gavin, alongside Ruben today. So I was born on the east coast of America and raised in Nigeria, which is where I was first introduced to French. And then Ruben, would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you. So my name is Ruben. I'm born in France, uh, Strasbourg, not Paris. Sorry for that. But because <laughs> I ask American, I say, I'm French. I love Paris. No, Strasbourg. <laughs> So sorry, hold on. <laughs> Absolutely. So we'll be reading. Um, so could you stand for the reading of the scriptures today? We'll be reading from Joshua 1, 1 to 6. I read in English and Reuben in French. So I'll give you a moment to find your way there if you need, if you need to. So Joshua 1, 1 to 6. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I'll give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river of Euphrates, all the Hittites country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give to them. Josué 1, verset 1 à 6. Après la mort de Moïse, le serviteur de l'Éternel, l'Éternel dit à Josué, fils de Nain et assistant de Moïse, « Mon serviteur Moïse est mort. Maintenant, lève-toi, passe le Jourdain avec tout ce peuple pour entrer dans le pays que je donnerai aux Israélites. Tout lieu que foulera la plante de votre pied, je vous le donne, comme je l'ai dit à Moïse. Votre territoire ira depuis le désert et le Liban jusqu'au grand fleuve, jusqu'à l'Euphrate, tout le pays des Hittites et jusqu'à la mer Méditerranée vers le soleil couchant. Personne ne pourra te résister tant que tu vivras. Je serai avec toi, comme j'ai été avec Moïse. Je ne te délaisserai pas et je ne t'abandonnerai pas. Fortifie-toi et prends courage, car c'est toi qui mettras ce peuple en possession du pays que j'ai juré à leurs ancêtres de leur donner. This is the word of God. All right, good morning, friends. You can uh, keep a finger stuck in your Bibles in Joshua chapter one. I'm gonna meet you there in just a moment. But where I'd like to actually begin today is in Ephesians one, because there is a link between Joshua one in the Old Testament and Ephesians one in the New Testament. Ephesians one says this. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Did you awaken to hope today? Was that the dominant predisposition that you experienced in the first waking moments of your day? And is it most days? 
the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. So as you awoke this morning, were you pounced on by a swarm of anxious thoughts and a list of to-dos, or was gratitude at the riches of his glorious inheritance just flowing effortlessly through your mind as you began your day? In his incomparably great power for us who believe, my body is a living bottle for the power of God. Is that your experience? Or is it more, do not talk to me before caffeine? (laughs) Is the one word summary of your felt experience with Jesus power? Or is it something less than that? The prayer concludes, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Hey, welcome back. How was your weekend? Great weekend. Really? What did you do? Went to church. Oh, church, I've heard of that. Isn't that the fullness of him who fills everything in every way? Jesus? (laughs) Certainly is. That's how the conversation typically goes, right? See, Ephesians 1 calls all of that and more your inheritance. God's spirit within you, within us, is your inheritance. But it tends to sound so much better than it feels on most days. So why is that? Why is there a gap between biblical promise and felt experience? Because we are collectively a wilderness generation. That's gonna make more sense in just a minute. So we're coming to the end of this practice demonstrating the gospel. It has been all about the person, presence, and power of the Holy Spirit. We started way back in September with a familiar stranger, and we've come to today. Part one was a reintroduction to the person of the Holy Spirit. Part two was an understanding and practice of the expressions of the Holy Spirit. And we've gotten to hear from Dara and Denise and Brian over the past few weeks. But in addition to that, there's, there's other workings going on that help us to express that. As I'm teaching right now, uh, there's a boiler room. That's what we're calling it. It's a nonstop intercession is happening in a room directly underneath this stage so that with every word I speak, there are prayers being spoken for you that these words might come alive in you the whole time. Uh, I've heard stories of prophetic prayers over coworkers over the last few weeks that have resulted in awkwardness always <laughs> and holy moments sometimes. And uh, I was stopped just this past Wednesday night by someone from this community that said, you anointed my wife for healing, for infertility a few weeks ago. We found out two days ago that we're pregnant. the practice and the expressions of the Holy Spirit coming alive in us. And then part three is a shared unifying invitation to step into the life of the Spirit together. So today we are concluding not just a single practice, but also a five-year discipleship journey that we've called Practicing the Way, a journey that began with one leader, is finishing with a different leader, but it has the same God, uh, the same good shepherd guiding every step of it. And so it's only appropriate that we would land with the land of our inheritance. And that takes us to Joshua chapter one. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that I am about to give them to the Israelites. Cross the water 
Does that sound familiar? It should, because God's done this before. It is arguably his most famous act up to this point, the one that they remember on the highest of high holidays, the one that eventually got a Disney script. God called Moses to lead his people out of captivity and into the promised land. But Pharaoh, after letting them go, immediately had regret, and so they chased them down throughout the desert until they finally had them trapped. Israel is stuck right in between a body of water and a pursuing army. Let's pick up right there in Exodus 14. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, will never, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. And then it goes on to say, then Moses stretched out his hands over the sea and all that night the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water to their right and a wall to their left. That's the story. God split a body of water in two so that you could march to safety. And when that's not just a story, when that's your story, you tell it. You tell it as often as you can and in as many ways as you can. And so that's what they did. They sang songs about it and they prayed prayers about it. They wrote poetry about it. They even made it a part of a holiday feast so they could taste that story on their taste buds. And here they are again, stuck behind a body of water. And God says to Joshua, Moses' successor, do you see that water in front of you? I'll part it for you. Now, lightning never strikes the same way twice, right? But Yahweh is doing his best to disprove that theory because he's up to his same old tricks again. God's done this before, but these people, like us, they're a wilderness generation. See, the promised land, that was always the destination. And after the Red Sea, they should have been home free, but they arrived on the banks of the Jordan and saw the promised land just on the other side, but did not trust God. They were more fearful of this new enemy occupying this promised land. The God who delivered me last time always seems too small for each new enemy we encounter. That is part of the journey of the spiritual life. And so when the scriptures speak of this confusing phrase, the fear of God, it's always in contrast with the fear of this world. Everyone lives by fear. We don't have a choice in that, but you do get to choose who or what you fear. And the thing about the fear of God is that it produces freedom within you. Every other kind of fear enslaves you. And so instead of entering the promised land, Israel wanders in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years! That's a long time by any stretch, but based on the estimated life expectancy at that time in the ancient world, it was quite literally a lifetime of wandering. So it is safe for us to assume that by the time Israel made it back to the banks of the Jordan in Joshua chapter one, almost everyone who was living the first time they came to this very location would have died during the decades of wandering. Those who were still alive certainly would have been small children, maybe even too small to remember getting here before at the time that they made it there. The people standing on the banks of the river in our passage, Joshua one, they're a wilderness generation. They've heard the stories of the Exodus, but they've grown up in the wilderness. The miraculous works of God and the promised land of inheritance, that was just ancient rumor. They were a wilderness generation. 
The wilderness is what they knew. They heard rumors of God's presence and power in the past among other people, but they had not experienced that presence and power for themselves. So stepping into the land of their inheritance meant stepping deeper into the reality of God, trusting that their experience of God up to this point was not all there was, that what God had for them back then is an invitation into what God has for us right now. They'd been told so many stories of what God could do, but the wilderness and the wandering was their experience of what God would do. So to cross the Jordan, they've got to drag these words off the old pages of the Torah, out of the poetry and the songs, and onto the muddy banks of the river that they're standing on right now. They have to trust that their experience of God up to this point is not the sum total of the experience of God that they will have. For a wilderness generation, rumors always exceed reality. The rumors of God's past work exceed the reality of God's current work, and stories exceed experience. I've heard bigger stories about God than I've experienced of God firsthand, and the past tends to outweigh the present. God seems to have been more demonstrative in the way he revealed himself in the past than he is today. What God did is always bigger than what God does. So for a wilderness generation like us, the present work of God requires the faith to believe that what I have experienced up to this point is not all there is. We are a wilderness generation. I mean, don't those conditions that I just went through match the conditions of the church of our time? And so what is required of a wilderness generation to know God not just on the page or in the story or in the song lyric, but here and now in my living, breathing life on the muddy banks of the Jordan or on the sidewalks of Portland or in the office building of the company or in the classroom that you teach in or the living room that you host in, the present work of God requires the faith to believe that what I have experienced is not all there is. Cross the water. God's done this before. He's up to his same old tricks again. That's generally true, but this time it's different. And here's what makes it different. Invitations, margin, community, and ultimately, inheritance. See, God's done this before, but this time the miracle is an invitation. Back to Joshua 1 and verse 2. It says, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them. Now that's decidedly different. No one got ready to cross the Red Sea. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. That's what Moses told them. And that's because the Red Sea was a miracle of intrusion. It was a welcome intrusion. But make no mistake about it, this was an intrusion. No one was expecting, much less preparing for, the parting of the Red Sea. No one except maybe Moses. They were in a panic. They were complaining. They wished that they had, were, were audibly wishing they had settled for slavery back in the desert. Sometimes God works by intrusion. It happened at creation when he spoke order over chaos. That's how all we know came to be. He did not partner with anyone or ask permission. God acted freely of his own volition to create. And at the conception of Jesus, God spoke over the virgin womb of Mary, creating life. He did not ask her permission first. He did not invite her to partner with him. Mary chose how to react, but to carry the life of Jesus in her womb, that was an intrusion. That was the free act of God uh, on his own volition. It's an intrusion, and it's the best kind of intrusion. 
God sometimes works this way. He sometimes comes into human history forcefully to move the story forward in a significant way, but his primary method, seemingly his preferred way of redemption, is invitation. When God first began to unfold the story of redemption, he partnered with a single family, with Abraham and Sarah, and invited them to risk all they had known up to this point, to take a couple who had battled infertility, move them to a place they had never been before, and say, I'm gonna create a nation out of you. So Abram went, says Genesis 12. So God invited human partnership, and then worked out redemption in partnership with ordinary flawed people. And that family line builds and builds through kings and prophets, slaves and exiles, men and women, until the arrival of Jesus, who goes around saying things like, if anyone wants to be my disciple, if anyone is thirsty, and most famously, follow me, all of which are what? They're invitations. So the Red Sea was God kicking their door down, but the Jordan River That's God inviting a wilderness generation to move beyond the wilderness and into the promise. It's an invitation. You and all these people get ready for the miracle. So how do you get ready? Well, the verses that follow show exactly how God invited them to get prepared. Joshua 1.8, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night. So here is God's instruction to Joshua. Meditate on my word. Day and night, get your imagination into the story that I am telling. He's offering a pathway to cultivate a biblical imagination. And that's because the first battlefield of the spiritual life is always in the mind. It is the imagination. We are a storytelling people that live in a storytelling world. People derive meaning, they form opinions, they interpret history, they write political policies from a chosen narrative. We live our lives within a story and that story informs what we believe and then how we live. And on every page of the Bible, there are competing narratives battling for the imaginations of the people that God makes his appeal to. Everyone believed a story about a giant way too big to take on except for David who believed in a God who was just as powerful and faithful in his day as he had been in the stories of the past. And then a kid took down the giant. It was a battlefield in David's imagination before it was a battlefield in a valley, or a battle in a valley with Goliath. Everyone believed that Rome was powerful and they were the biggest show in town and that Jesus was nothing more than a gnat that they were swatting out of their faces, except for a few stubborn disciples that were hidden away in an upper room, waiting on the mysterious gift of his spirit that he promised. And then the church was born on the day of Pentecost, and slowly but surely the empire surrendered to love. It was a battle for the imagination long before it was a battle for an empire. And everyone believed that the wilderness was all there was and that the nomadic life wasn't that bad and that God was a faithful companion along the journey even if he was less powerful than he had been with our ancestors in the past. So here's how you make way for a miracle. Immerse your imagination in my word until my story becomes your story. My story in the past informing the ways that you're seeing your days in the present. Meditate on my word day and night. But it doesn't stop with meditation. Keep this book of the law always where? On your lips. Meditate on it, yes, but more than that, speak it out. 
Spread the story of my invitation. Cultivate that kind of expectation in one another. Friends, you can create realities. In fact, you do create realities with the words that you speak. And you create a biblical imagination or a low sense of expectation in one another through the words that you speak, the stories you tell, and the things that you don't say. It's by the way that you respond to one another in a moment of joy or a moment of crisis. It's by the gossip that you resist even when the story is so good. It's by the prayers that you pray amidst need and amidst gratitude. And it's by the response that you give to what did you do this weekend to your coworker. You see, what you say, the words that you choose and the story behind them, they matter because I create realities with my speech. And I know the story that I want to live into. Plenty of people believe all sorts of different things. The difference in believing this particular story is that it is both true and powerful. And so when it gets to live in your imagination first and then on your lips, it is a story that intrudes into this world and creates an entirely new reality. You and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan into the land that I will give them. God gives this promise to Joshua. I will give you every place where you set your foot. Everywhere you set your foot. Here's where the biblical imagination and the story that you're speaking actually gets enfleshed and lived in the real world. I want to miraculously bring you into the experience of my promise. I want to take you into the land where you don't just meditate on my promises or tell my stories, but live in them and know them as your very own. But it's an invitation, not an intrusion. So you're going to have to walk forward believing, and then it's yours. It makes me think of that one scene from Indiana Jones. You know, when he's like just about to get to the Holy Grail, but there's that chasm between him and the cup. And so what does he do? He takes that one step into the invisible dark and then once his foot touches down, there's this whole path that lights up underneath him and he walks all the way across on the path. In my experience, that's how it works to say yes to the invitation of the Holy Spirit. You always first take a step into the pitch black dark and you're saying, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I'm like 65% sure that somehow there's gonna be solid ground when I throw my foot out there. And then after you do, after you step into the dark holding by nothing but a thread of trust, then the path tends to show up beneath you. And this is probably a good time for me to acknowledge that I'm getting old. Because that was a movie reference from 1989. And <laughs> I didn't even have to try hard to come up with that. It literally just sprung effortlessly into my imagination when I was writing this teaching. And you know who else is getting old? Harrison Ford. <laughs> Saw him at the Apple store in Manhattan one time. My man is as frail as my grandfather who uses a walker and much shorter, even shorter than you think. Dude's barely breaking five feet. I'm not exaggerating at all. Simon Ponsonby says this, we must be careful not to pray, come Holy Spirit, unless we are prepared to go with the Holy Spirit. So if you want more than a lifetime of comfortable, safe reflections on other people's experiences with God and the warmth of companionship as you wander about the wilderness, if you want to feel your feet squish into the muddy ground beneath the Jordan River while you walk on the bottom of a river with the waters parted on either side, then you're going to have to start by taking a step into the dark.
because we're a wilderness generation. And it is possible to live your entire Christian life just wandering around in the wilderness with the companionship of Jesus. And he loves you enough that he'll wander there until your days are done with you if you want him to. But there's also a land of promise. And there's an invitation. See, God's done this miracle before, but this time, the miracle goes through the margins. Because after all this getting ready and all this miracle talk, Joshua chapter two tells the story of a prostitute named Rahab who assists a couple of Israelite spies who are sent into the land with, and keeps them from getting caught. It's a great story. But narratively, it makes no sense. Scholars actually argue that it's very strange that it was even included because it doesn't advance the narrative at all. Joshua chapter one is get ready. Joshua chapter three is now cross. And in between, in the middle, is this strangely placed and unnecessary story. Your high school creative writing teacher would have docked you a full letter grade for getting way off topic. So why on earth is this included? Because the pathway to inheritance includes a Gentile prostitute being woven into the redemptive family. Because Rahab helped them because of her faith in God. In her own words, she says, I know that the Lord has given you this land. We heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And then she goes on to conclude, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. See, Joshua is trying to cultivate the, the expectation for a miracle by getting a biblical imagination into the Israelites, but a biblical imagination already lives in a Canaanite across the river. It's living in a poor bottom of the socioeconomic food chain foreign prostitute. And in Joshua chapter six, Rahab and her family are taken in by Israel. They are woven into the family of redemption and she is the first non-Jewish person to join in to the redemptive story God is telling in the whole of the Bible. Joshua chapter two might not advance the narrative immediately, but you can't tell this story without Joshua chapter two because inheritance comes with kingdom family. This time, the miracle goes through the margins. That is not an optional expression of following Jesus for people who happen to have a particular bend towards social justice. It is a non-negotiable. It is a part of God's heart that always gets included when he tells his salvation story. When Jesus was born, two of the four gospel writers summed up his arrival on earth with genealogies, which included Gentiles, women, and sinners. Those who are marginalized by their race, by their gender, and by their morality. At the other end of the story, when Jesus carries his cross, paying the debt for humanity, he is helped in carrying that cross by Simon of Cyrene, an African minority living in a Greco-Roman world. And when he finally speaks, after hours of silence, it is to the weeping women of Jerusalem, the ostracized, discarded, and overlooked, and Jesus, Jesus speaks to them and he calls them daughters of Jerusalem. That is a title that appears eight times in the Bible here and then seven times in Song of Solomon, a Hebrew love story about a bridegroom who's in pursuit of his bride. And when the church was born, God visited Peter in his dreams until Peter visited a Gentile thought to be the debased, irredeemable race, and a revival broke out in Cornelius' living room, so a national religion then became more ethnically diverse than any family the world had ever seen up to that point. The miracle goes through the margins, and it always has. 
So if it's the spirit that you're keeping in step with, you will find yourself among the marginalized and the marginalized among your inner circle. And when I say marginalized, I'm talking about those who feel like they don't belong. That's a group that exists both inside and outside of this church, by the way. Yes, of course, it does include the poor and the houselessness, or the houseless and the addicted and the refugee and the immigrant and the imprisoned, absolutely. But it also includes the man who wonders if the community meeting in your home can really be his community because he's old enough to be the father of most of the people at the table. And it includes the woman who thinks this church might not be the church for her because of body image. And it includes the person who purposefully arrives late and leaves early because the most painful part of the gathering is standing alone while you hug all of your best friends. When I say marginalized, I'm talking about all of that. On his deathbed, the great uh, British revivalist pastor John Wesley, uh, he secretly penned a letter and then hid it away and it was discovered only the day after he had passed and it was instructions for his own funeral. And among those instructions, it said this, No procession and no hearse will be needed. Find six poor unemployed men and offer them a pound each. That was a substantial payment at the time. Pay them a pound each to carry my body to the grave. Now I want you to imagine that. Thousands came to celebrate the life of this man who reformed the church. And there comes his casket being carried by six houseless men in need of employment so that his last act went through the margins. Even his lifeless body used to bring the kingdom. The life of the spirit in a community, it always includes unlikely participants. So if if we cross from where we've been, church, into the land of our inheritance, God will bring unlikely participants with us. Our next community leaders are currently in prison. Our next alpha leader is waking up in a tent under the Burnside Bridge this morning. uh, We have a future staff member who's currently a a mom living in the housing projects trying to raise several children by herself. That's how God writes his stories. The miracles go through the margins. But we're a wilderness generation. So for most of us, stories like the ones I just rattled off, they are rumors that live on the pages of the book that we reflect on, but they are not the life that we live. An inheritance is an invitation to know those kinds of rumors for ourselves and to know those ideas of people as brothers and sisters. God's done this miracle before. But this time, the miracle takes a community. Joshua 3, now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe, And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. Choose 12 leaders, one from each tribe, to stand in the water with the priests. That's how this miracle is going to go down. Now at the Red Sea, God used one man, Moses, while the whole nation watched. He stood at the water's edge, he raised his hands, and the wind of the Spirit blew at his back until the waters parted right down the middle. And then because of one leader's faith in the midst of everyone else's doubt, they all got to participate in a miracle. But this, Joshua, is not that. If you want to cross these waters, you're going to need one, more than one leader with his heart burning. You're going to need a community. So you need to get an elder from each tribe, a community that agrees together, we hear you, Lord. 
and we are saying yes, yes, do it again. Do what we've seen you do before, that we've heard of you doing before, but do it in our time and in our place and in these waters. Probably the most famous line from all of God's instructions to Joshua in the preparation to cross this river are Joshua 1.6. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people into the land that I swore I swore to their ancestors to give them. Now that plays really well on one-liner motivational calendars and in Texas football locker rooms before the big game. But why did Joshua need strength and courage? And why didn't God give that same instruction to Moses when he was in charge? Well, when God called Moses to liberate his people, Moses was all kinds of insecure and unqualified. He rattled off this whole list of reasons God had the wrong guy in Exodus 3. And then God responded simply to him, I will be with you. It's this beautiful promise. And when God calls Joshua, he gives that same instruction. He makes the same promise. He says, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will be with you, Joshua, and you're gonna need to be strong and courageous. He repeats that part three times in the next four verses. God's really hammering this bit home. It's the same old promise that I made to Moses, but you're gonna need stamina to take hold of that promise this time around. Why is that? It's because at the Red Sea, God parted the waters immediately and he parted them straight down the middle. The effects of the miracle were immediate and the evidence was right in front of them. But at the Jordan River, God made the water stand up in a heap and he did it immediately when the elders stood in the water. But the effects, the the visible evidence that God really was making away, the felt experience of the miracle, it took a while. Back to Joshua chapter three. Now the Jordan is at flood stage during the harvest, yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. So there's the elders standing ankle deep in the Jordan waiting on a miracle. They're waiting on a miracle that God's already done. The water stopped immediately. They stood up in a heap, but where did they stop? A great distance away. How long does it take for the waters to wash out from miles upstream? How long after God said yes and he did the miraculous were they standing there just waiting, just waiting to feel the effects of the miracle that God had already done? See, to feel the effects of the miracle, to walk in it, to experience what God's accomplished for us, it takes foolishness and then waiting and then walking. That's the cost of inheritance. It costs foolishness. It costs leaders who are willing to risk foolishness in public. How long did they stand in that river just waiting for it to dry out, waiting for the effects of the miracle God granted while the whole nation watched them? How long did they look like fools before they looked like saints? And that's what spiritual leadership is, by the way. It's a willingness to go first. It's a willingness to put myself out there because in a belief that God really is who he says he is. And so I'm gonna put myself far enough out there that God is either gonna come through on a level that only he can come through or I'm gonna look like a fool out here by myself. That's what spiritual leadership is. One way to define it is the willingness to risk foolishness in public 
The Red Sea parted instantly. The Jordan River dried up instantly, but it was way upstream. So while God was faithful, the evidence of that faithfulness required waiting. And what does waiting do to us? A couple of years ago, I read the biography of Joseph Noss. It's a story of addiction, really severe addiction that took everything from this guy who seemed to have it quite together. And there's this one moment later in the book when he's been living in this court-ordered rehab facility and after several months getting clean there, he gets a small measure of freedom. He's allowed to leave the rehab house for just a couple of hours every day. And within the first hour of getting to leave the house, he finds himself sitting in his parked car with a bottle of unopened Jack Daniels wrapped in a brown paper bag in the passenger seat next to him. And he's in the parking lot looking at the front door of the massage parlor where he used to pay for prostitution. He's months into a journey of recovery. The hardest days were all already behind him and he had promised himself plenty of times that this is not where he would end up. But the thing about waiting is that it grinds down even the most profound inspiration. The thing about waiting is that the impact of rock bottom that had knocked the wind out of him several months ago that made him realize I gotta get myself together and I've gotta get clean, that impact had been dulled by so many ordinary days since that moment. And the inspiration to fight to get his life back, it was still there but it had been weakened by time. The sting of shame that that followed every trip to that massage parlor and the self-hatred that would flood him in the midst of every hangover, it wasn't so sharp anymore and so neither was his willpower to resist. That's what waiting does to us. So there stand the elders with their toes getting wrinkly in the water that was supposed to part. The fire in their bellies that led them into that river at first, it is dulled down to embers at this point. It's been replaced by knots of nervousness and questions and doubts. That's what waiting does to us. But even in the waiting, after the inspiration's worn off, they stay put. Because it was not emotion or inspiration that was keeping them in the river, but their emotional experiences changed, but they stay put. It was faith. And faith is fueled by trust, not by emotion. And so faith has the strength to wait. And then, after risking foolishness, and after enduring waiting, the water washes out and they finally get to walk through the river on dry ground. On the other side of risk and faith and wait past the inspired moment, then comes the experience of the miraculous promise. And that brings us back where we started. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. This is a prayer that you might not only know but experience all that he's won for you, that you, a wilderness generation, might cross the Jordan. And Jesus was baptized where? in the waters of the Jordan River. It was in these very waters that the Father spoke loud enough for anyone to hear, this is my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. And it was from these very waters that he was led into the wilderness to fast and be tempted for 40 days, symbolic of those 40 years of wandering for every new wilderness generation. 
And then coming out of the wilderness, he had to cross back over the Jordan River in order to enter into the city, clothed in the power of the Holy Spirit, to live the life that we could not live, die the death that was ours to die, and then raise to life that he might breathe life once and for all into us. The miracle of miracles that gave us such a great inheritance, it all gets traced back to these waters. And the miracle is done, it's sealed, it is finished. But to experience that miracle, to know it here and now, what he has already won for us, to walk in it, that requires the risk of foolishness and the willingness to wait and then to walk. It requires that the elders and the pastors and the staff and the leaders in this place choose to stand ankle deep in plain view of all the rest of us, showing their whole vulnerable selves just to say God's greatest hits are not in the past. Stuck on the pages of scripture or in some rumors from another place, they're a present invitation. What are you doing in that river? Oh, me? I'm coming into the land of our inheritance. See, God's done this before. He's parted the water. So why is it so different this time? Because the Red Sea was a miracle of deliverance, but the Jordan River is a miracle of inheritance. What do I mean by inheritance? I mean the restoration of all that was lost to sin. I mean the spoils of Jesus' victory. That's why inheritance is always relational. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, a perfect relationship was broken. Perfect relationship between God and people and perfect relationship between people and people. This is why the work of Jesus reunites us with the Father, fills us with his living presence, and even endows us with his spirit that we might join with him in doing his work. It's all relational. And it's why the Spirit's gifts are tuned by loving relationship with brothers and sisters. And it's why power without loving relationship to brothers and sisters is just a bunch of noise, according to 1 Corinthians 13, because it's all relational. See, when I talk about our inheritance, I mean the power of the Spirit becoming ordinary in our community. I'm talking about a naturally supernatural kind of people. Not sensational, just ordinarily miraculous. Just biblically miraculous. And I'm talking about the love of Jesus ruling in our relationships to one another, about the warmth of community and the humility of reconciliation and the beauty of love, restored relationship to God, restored relationship to one another, all of it empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now I want to name this, the last decade of Bridgetown Church has been a miracle of deliverance. Finding real freedom in Jesus. The next decade of Bridgetown Church, we're being invited to a miracle of inheritance to live into all that freedom really does afford us. And I've looked across the river. I've seen the land. I've seen the land, the land that we're being invited to occupy. I've seen our inheritance. I came from Brooklyn to Portland to go there with you, to live into it with you. It's the power of the Spirit alive among us, and it's the the love of Jesus expressed between us. It is prayer that comforts your soul in the deepest way in holy privacy, and it is prayer in the places of deepest need and violence and, and heartbreak in our very city. It is reconciliation with a friend that you lost touch with from this community, and it's reconciliation along racial lines where power abuses have divided people groups in the history of this city. 
It is crazy stories of salvation when the least likely person comes into our family. And it is ordinary stories of, of reconciliation. When the person that you had a falling out over COVID with, you can reunite with because his love keeps us together. It is miraculous healing that makes us dance together. And it is love through suffering that bears with the one who's still waiting far too long and the most profound healing. It is stories of powerful breakthrough and it's stories of humble love. It's the power of the spirit alive among us and it's the love of Jesus expressed between us. That's the land of our inheritance. In the last chapter of Bridgetown Church, it has been a miracle of deliverance. It's been finding real freedom in Jesus. And the next chapter, we're being invited to a miracle of inheritance, of living into all that freedom affords us. Because our story, it doesn't have to be defined by the wilderness. It can be defined by the deliverer. The present work of God among us requires the faith to believe that my experience up to this point is not all there is. But you do not come into inheritance through one leader whose heart's burning. It takes a community agreeing together and saying yes. So I wanna close in Joshua chapter 24. This is the end of his story. Man, I'm having a hard time. After these things, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance. At Timnath Sarah in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. It's great to be emotional when everyone's emotional. It's so tough to be emotional when you're the only one who's emotional. I was born in Nashville. Uh, that was home for me for my whole childhood. My family moved, and then I went to high school in Florida. I ended up in Chicago for college. And then New York City was home to me for 12 years after that. Today, my parents live in Charleston, South Carolina, a place that I've never lived, and my family's scattered all over the place. I don't really have a hometown. There's not a place I go to that I feel like, I'm home now. All my memories are here. When I was a kid, my dad took me to visit the grave of his father in the small rural town in southeastern Kentucky. That's where most of my family lives uh, and where he grew up on a tobacco farm. So my dad was the youngest of six. He grew up on that tobacco farm. He's the only one of his siblings to leave that little town. So the majority of my family lives in a place that I've never lived. And that visit, when he took me to his father's grave, it made an impression on my young mind. And, and even as a kid, after that, I started to wonder where one day my kids might go to remember me, and where they would take their kids to tell stories about the days that I lived. And for a long time, I thought, you know, I, I want them to take me back to that tobacco farm. I want them to put my bones in that dirt and have a little stone somewhere on that land that says wherever I went and wherever I ended up and whatever, wherever I spent my days, my story gets traced back here where my dad's days get traced back to. But then I started this church in New York and I lived there longer than I lived anywhere in my life and I loved it. And we had a plan. We'll pastor this church until we're old. We'll give our lives to this city and, and we'll live alongside these amazing friends and we'll watch our kids grow up together. And I know this sounds weird, but then over time, the subway stench, it started making me feel like I was home. 
And, and then like the, the hustle and bustle of those overcrowded sidewalks and the energy of that place and the rats scampering across the tracks, it all made me feel like, ah, oh, I'm home. <laughs> that feeling I hadn't had before. So scatter my ashes in Brooklyn and name a street after me if this goes really well. That was, that was my new plan. And then something really unexpected happened. God's plan had more twists and turns in it than mine did. And I moved across the country to a place I barely knew and had only spent a few days in because his voice, not my plan, directs my steps. So now what? What's home for me and where are they gonna put me when it's all said and done? And then on my way to Portland, I read Joshua 24 and they buried him in the land of his inheritance. And that's where I want to be laid, in the land of my inheritance. And it doesn't matter where the patch of dirt happens to be, I just like Joshua want to inherit everything God's got to give me in my number days this side of eternity. I want every story, every relationship, I want every miracle to celebrate with gratitude, I want every answered prayer and every whispered prayer, I want every drop of renewal, every unjust system overturned and every community formed. And I don't care where they put me when it's all said and done, I care where I live while I've still got breath in my lungs, it's in the land of my inheritance, that's where I wanna live. It's everywhere I set my foot. That's the future I want God to walk me into. And it's only by the power of his spirit. That's the theme that I want to define my life. His feet lived on the ground of God's promise. He walked every step of God's invitation. They can put my bones wherever they want as long as they can say that about my days. And Moses got buried according to the book of Deuteronomy just on the other side of the Jordan on a hill that overlooked the land of inheritance but never entered it. It's a tragic ending to an amazing story. But Joshua, they buried him in the land of his inheritance. He lived in it. He walked in it. He experienced the promise. The last chapter of Bridgetown Church, it's been a miracle of deliverance, and man, it's been breathtaking. The next chapter of Bridgetown Church it's a miracle of inheritance. But you don't come into inheritance through one leader whose heart's burning. It takes a community agreeing together 